This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, again, we're so thankful for the freedom that we have in this nation, the freedom that we have to gather together to focus and worship upon, worship you. Father, we're thankful for our forebears, for the generations before us who have understood these important establishment principles from your word, whether they were actual believers or not. They were schooled in eternal principles that derive from your word, from both Old and New Testament, that are the foundation and the basis that we have for freedom. We understand that freedom, real freedom, true freedom is a matter of the soul. It is spiritual, and it is for freedom that Christ died to set us free. He set us free from slavery to sin. He set us free from slavery to the law. He set us free from slavery to uh, religious observance that has been established by so many false religions. And, Father, it is through his death on the cross that we have this true freedom, that we have new life, and that it is only as we exploit that which you have given to us in your word, as we learn it and as we apply it to our lives, can we really benefit uh, from this freedom that we have been given. And, Father, we pray that today as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount and reflect upon the heritage of freedom we have in this nation, that we might be challenged to exploit that, our spiritual privileges in Christ, to maximize the freedom that we have in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On Thursday night, we were, I was going to talk about the Declaration of Independence and our nation's birthday and principles of freedom which we have in this country. Because of the storm, we had to cancel class, but nevertheless, I wanted to move some of what I was going to say on Thursday night to this morning so that we could reflect upon that as we have still observing our nation's birthday uh, this weekend. Uh, uh, We celebrate the 4th of July because it was on that date that the Continental Congress approved the Declaration of Independence. Although it was not signed on that day, it might have been signed by John Hancock. It might have been signed, but we're not sure by the secretary of the convention, but it was over the course of the next uh, month through August the 2nd that it was actually signed by those in attendance at the um, Continental Congress. A few things I wanted to point out because they're not understood today, and that is that uh, those who attended the Continental Congress for the signing of the Declaration of Independence were almost to a man regenerate, justified, born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who may not have been, and there's doubts with a couple of them, though a case can be made even for Benjamin Franklin, who is notably uh, described as a deist, but that is based on writings of his that come from his early early to mid-20s. He was uh, a friend of George Whitfield, who was the Billy Graham, as it were, of his generation. George Whitfield was British. George Whitfield made several trips to the colonies where he conducted evangelistic campaigns, starting in a period that, w- that preceded the revolutionary period, known as the Great Awakening. This described this period of intense revival 
that seemed to sweep through the colonies starting in the 1740s through the preaching of men such as Jonathan Edwards in uh, Massachusetts and others, notably the Tennant family. Uh, William Tennant Sr. was a Scots-Irish Presbyterian who immigrated to uh, the colonies in the early 1700s, and he had several sons, and he desired to train his sons in the gospel ministry. And at this time in our history, uh, the, the most uh, ev- most what we would call today evangelicals, most Protestants in the U.S. are the predominant uh, denomination was Presbyterian or Congregational. And as a result of the Great Awakening, a split occurred in these denominations. They had become somewhat calcified in their beliefs, and many just taught that as long as you just affirmed the doctrinal statement or the creedal statement of the Presbyterian or Congregational Church, that you were sort of automatically saved just because you were born in the church. During the period of the Great Awakening, it was realized by a large group of of individuals, of pastors and clergy, that what was needed was a proclamation of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, but it was necessary for each individual to make a decision to put their faith alone in Christ alone for salvation, and that at the instant of that faith in Christ, they would be justified. And so this group became known as uh, as the New Siders or New Lights, depending on whether you're Congregational or Presbyterian. William Tennant established a school to train his sons as pastors. Other young men came and were trained there, and it was originally known as uh, the, the Log College. It was located north of Philadelphia, about 20 mi- miles near uh, Neshaminy, Pennsylvania. And it was through the influence of his sons and those he trained that the gospel went out and brought about a genuine biblical revival in the colonies that laid a, a foundation, a spiritual foundation for, uh, for the period of the American War for Independence. And it's important to understand that connection. First, there was that spiritual renewal that took place in the colonies, and then that was followed by by this shift that occurred in terms of the thinking of the nation. And a lot of what occurred as a, at that time in terms of the War for Independence was a result of their understanding of the Word of God, their understanding of the principles that were taught in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and rightly uh, rightly described as a Judeo-Christian worldview. And whether they were actual believers in Jesus Christ or not is beside the point in one sense, because they were all to a man influenced by the thinking that came out of that Judeo-Christian matrix of British Protestantism, uh, of the especially the 17th century, that influenced even those who drifted away from some of their uh, Protestant beliefs as, as in which they were brought up, such as John Locke, who was reared in a Puritan family. And there he imbibed of these ideas. Now, Locke's kind of a mixed bag because... He basically puts his ultimate uh, authority and rests his ultimate authority not in the Word of God but in uh, in, in reason, in empiricism uh, specifically. But he has many valuable contributions that are uh, really derived from, from the Word of God. But it was the Word of God that influenced the vast majority of the signers of the Declaration and those who were leaders and influential. We often talk about sort of that A list of leaders uh, who signed the Declaration and who most people know. And I want to also talk about, uh, as I thought about this the other day, I said I want to focus on some of those that are not well known because they provided the backbone for the revolution. In fact, if you look at the statistics, when the War for Independence began, probably less than 10% of the colonists were in favor of, of independence. It was only a few, as in most conflicts, there are usually only a few that understand the issues. 
There are uh, a few that understand the issues and have a positive and correct understanding and solution, and then there's another small percentage that correctly understands the issues, but they have the wrong solution. Everybody else is swayed by emotions, swayed by money, swayed by many other issues, and that's pretty much the way it was uh, during the colonies. As the war progressed, uh, people became more aware of these issues. If you want to have a better understanding of these issues and what made America great, I suggest that you go see Dinesh D'Souza's uh, film that was just uh, came out early in Houston and Denver, I believe, and uh, nationally came out on Wednesday or Thursday, uh, July the uh, 2nd or 3rd this week. I took advantage of the opportunity that we didn't have Bible class on Thursday night, and after the weather went away, I was able to go to the theater and watch that, and I highly recommend it. There are parts of that film that will make you extremely proud to be an American and have the heritage that we have. There are other parts of that which will be discouraging because you will get see uh, where we are, have drifted in this nation and how we are on the cusp of losing our freedoms due to the influence of those who are enemies of freedom, enemies of liberty, and really enemies of everything that this nation was founded uh, founded to be. But one of the myths that comes along is the founders of this nation were secularists. And I just want to go through briefly some, some of these men and what they what they believed in their background. John Witherspoon uh, was a Presbyterian pastor, and later he became he came from Scotland, and later he became a, he was not only a, a signer of the of the Declaration, but he was also uh, the president of the College of New Jersey. Now, I mentioned earlier the impact of William Tennant Sr.'s Law College. That Law College evolved into the College of New Jersey, which became known as Princeton. Uh, Witherspoon was responsible for printing two different editions of the of American Bibles, including the 1791 edition of the American First Family Bible. He was responsible as a teacher, instructor, professor at, at Princeton for training uh, James Madison, who became the fourth U.S. president, who originally went to Princeton to study theology, where he learned biblical principles of law and government, and that formed his legal convictions. Uh, uh, Witherspoon was also responsible for training one one other vice president, three Supreme Court justices, 10 cabinet members, 12 governors, 60 congressmen, including 21 senators and 39 representatives. These men were grounded in theology, biblical theology, and the Word of God. Then we have Charles Thompson, who was the Secretary of the Continental Congress, he was responsible for translating and printing Thompson's Bible, a translation named for him, which was the first uh, Greek Septuagint to English translation, translating the Old Testament Greek translation of the Septuagint to English, and it's still to this day considered one of the very best uh, translations in the English language. After 19 years of working on it, it was published in four volumes in 1808. These men loved the Word of God. He also translated the New Testament from Greek into English. Uh, Charles Carroll was another signer of the Declaration, and he wrote in a letter to a friend, uh, Charles Horton, on the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation and on his merits, not on the works I have done in obedience to his precepts. These men had a clear understanding of the gospel of, uh, of grace. He was also so committed to Christianity that he personally at his and he personally built and financed a Christian uh, house of worship. He was a strong, outspoken Christian, and his statue is in the East Hall of the um, uh, Congress building and the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. In a letter to James, uh, James McHenry, he wrote, Without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. They, therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion, we can apply that to many today, uh, whose morality is, uh, the Christian religion, whose morality is so sublime and pure, are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best security for the duration of free government. 
whether people are actually regenerate or not, if you are not living according to the absolute standards of God's words in terms of morality, then anything goes, and this leads to the internal destruction of a nation. Uh, Witherspoon, who I mentioned earlier, uh, wrote or uh, uh, said in a uh, sermon he preached to the Continental Congress in, on May the 17th, 1776, which was entitled An Observance of a Day of Fasting and Prayer, stated, uh, True religion, I'll just quote the underlined parts, True religion is nothing else but an inward temper and outward conduct suited to your state and circumstance in providence at any time. God grant that in America true religion and civil liberty may be inseparable. See, they believed in the fact that government should not dictate religious beliefs to the citizenry, but they did not believe in a in this modern concept of a separation of church and state. They believed that 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 people's uh, religious convictions, their Christian convictions, should inform and direct their legislation and policies. So he said, God grant that in America true religion and civil liberty may be inseparable, and the unjust attempts to destroy the one may in the issue tend to the support and establishment of both. Another great American who was a signer of the uh, Declaration, is uh, Benjamin Rush, whose dates are 1745 to 1813. He was the father of American medicine. The, the, the black mark against his name he, is he was one of the foremost advocates for uh, uh, bloodletting as a medical treatment for various diseases. He was also responsible for numerous medical discoveries. He was a founder of the first American Abolition Society, and he was active in opposing slavery for 50 years. One of the things you learn, I had forgotten this, I had learned this before, that you'll learn if you read D'Souza's book on on America or see the film, is that uh, as the, the development of slavery in the United States is not what you're normally taught in schools. In fact, the first case, this isn't in the film, I just know this, uh, the first case that established chattel slavery was in Virginia, and it was a black slaveholder and a black slave. There were quite a few black free, freedmen in the South during the period before the uh, War of Northern Aggression who owned slaves, and they treated them harsher than most of the uh, white owners. In fact, in several states, including Louisiana and South Carolina, there were almost as many black slave owners as there were white slave owners. Now, that's not usually taught today because the education we get related to the uh, war of northern northern aggression is as deeply and profoundly distorted. Um, And if it were not for white Christians, there would still be slavery. There would still be chattel slavery in this country. There would still be chattel slavery in England. Uh, the, The blacks enslaved blacks in Africa. They sold them to Arab slave traders who then sold them uh, to those in, in Western civilization. And it was white Christians, uh, William Wilberforce, Granville Sharp, and other notables in leadership in, in Britain from the late 1700s and early 1800s who were responsible for the abolition of the slave trade. It wasn't liberals. It wasn't secularists. It wasn't atheists. It was evangelical Christians that were responsible, and males, because at that time women were not influential in government. So today the evil people are white evangelical males, and yet it was due to white evangelical males that we have the freedoms that we have, that we abolish slavery. Uh, It was due to white evangelical uh, Christian males that women were given the vote. All of this by those who are now considered the enemy of culture, the enemy of civilization, and the enemy of freedom. But that freedom today has been redefined in terms of a socialist, anti-liberty type of, of freedom. Uh, Benjamin Rush founded the first Bible Society in 1808, 
and he is considered by the other uh, founders to be the third most significant uh, of the founders. He mass-produced the first uh, stereotyped Bible with the help of President Madison and the U.S. Congress. In his autobiography, he wrote, My only hope of salvation is in the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his Son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Can you find a more clear understanding, a more clear testimony? I've interviewed dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people for church membership in the various churches that I have pastored, and I have found very few who have sat down and been able to give that clear an understanding of the testimony of their salvation. He also wrote that the only means of establishing and perpetuating our republican forms of government is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. And he considered that to be so significant that he founded five colleges and universities, including the first college for women. So he would, he, he, these men practiced what they believed in terms of their evangelical Christianity. And then Richard Stockton, who lived from 1730, died in 1781, not to see the conclusion of the War for Independence. He'd been chosen by New Jersey to replace one of their delegates who would not vote for independence. He was captured and tortured by the British. In his last will and testament, he wrote, I think it proper here not only to subscribe to the entire belief of the great and leading doctrines of the Christian religion, such as the being of God, the universal defection and depravity of human nature, the divinity and person and the completeness of the redemption purchased by the blessed Savior of the divine faith accompanied with an an habitual virtuous life, but also to exhort and to charge my children that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, these are men that are known because of the they signed the Declaration, because they were leaders, they were political, civil leaders in their society. But those who were most instrumental during the period of the War for Independence were the clergy. And I have a book called The Forgotten Heroes of Liberty, subtitled The Chaplains and Clergy of the American Revolution, written by Joel Headley, and this was first published in the mid-19th century. I have a reprint of this book, and the other night as I was thumbing through it, I wanted to find um, the story of a pastor that had a significant influence on the war for independence, but was not one of those who was most widely known. Those who are widely known would, of course, include Peter uh, Gabriel Muhlenberg, who was the one who stood in his pulpit, pulled off his clerical robes, revealing the uniform of a of a uh, of a Continental Army uh, colonel, and called upon his men to follow him out of the church and to go and join the uh, Revolutionary Army. You have his brother, Frederick, uh, George Frederick Muhlenberg, who disagreed vehemently with his brother over his involvement as a pastor in politics and in the war until, because he was a pastor of a Lutheran church in New York City, until the British burned his church to the ground, at which time he joined the Continental Army and went on to be the first Speaker of the House in the first Congress after the signing of the of the Constitution. So these men are well known. I wanted to find someone that was not, and as I thumbed my way through, I found a a name that stood out to me for a couple of reasons. His name was Daniel McCullough. He was noted as being a man who was fond of study. He had a gifted intellect. He entered Princeton. Remember I told you about the Law College of New Jersey. He was from, he was born in Neshaminy, Pennsylvania, which was where the Law College had been established. He was born in 1748, so he was in the second generation or so, so coming out of the Great Awakening. He would have grown up with William Tennant Sr.'s grandsons and attended Princeton uh, with them. He entered Princeton when he was 14 years of age, and he was licensed to the gospel ministry by the Congregational
International Church when he was 17 years of age. He was part of New Light Congregationalism, and he was a very able and articulate spokesman for the gospel and for the theological principles of New Light Congregationalism. He uh, was associated, I haven't, didn't read anything that connected him specifically to George Whitfield, but he was close friends and colleagues with many men who were uh, associated with George Whitfield, so he probably was as well. Among his peers, he was noted as a respected Bible scholar and theologian, but he wasn't on that A-list. He was a B-lister. He was influential. And when the uh, War for Independence broke out, He was among the first voices from the pulpit challenging and encouraging the men in his church to join the Continental Army, and he proclaimed the duty of their resistance to tyranny and called upon the men in his congregation to join the war. It wasn't long before he realized he could not just sit by and watch, and he offered his services to the Continental Congress and was appointed as a chaplain to the troops under General Thompson as he took an army north to Canada in the spring of 1776 before the declaration was signed. Uh, The Continental Army attacked unsuccessfully, had attacked Quebec, and then this was a second army that was headed north in order to defeat the British Army in Canada, and he was part of that endeavor. He fought at the Battle of Three Rivers, and in that battle, the Americans sought to slip around the British at night by going around them on the river. Unfortunately, it took them longer than Thompson expected, and by the time they, before they uh, landed uh, up uh, down, downstream from the Brits, uh, they were discovered, it was sunrise, they were discovered, and their uh, element of surprise was completely lost. The British were able to quickly organize and attack them. Uh, the Americans sought refuge in a swamp. There they were outflanked by the Brits, and they were separated into different groups. General Anthony Wayne led one group in a retreat, and the British, who were not interested in taking too many prisoners, uh, let them escape. Those that remained under General Thompson included uh, his chaplain, Daniel McCullough, who fought at his side, and together they led the charge against the British line. Uh, Though they were overwhelmed by numbers, McCullough, along with Thompson, uh, was captured by the British, and McCullough was sent to one of those horrible British uh, uh, prison ships, uh, along with 235 others. According to Headley's article, he says, quote, with their usual hatred of rebel parsons, the British hated the pastors in the colonies. They viewed it as the Presbyterian War because it was the Presbyterian pastors who were so influential from their, from their pulpit. So they referred to them as rebel parsons or the Black Robe Brigade uh, was another term that they used to refer to the pastors. So because of that, they treated him most harshly. They threw him into a prison ship, uh, which, according to Headley, where they were treated worse than disgraced savages. They were crowded into the hold with the sick and the dying. They were barely given enough food. Uh, the food they were given wasn't fit for swine. They were companions of vermin, and there he was kept as a prisoner for six or seven months. Finally, he was released on his own parole, and he made his way home, uh, to his church and to his pulpit, but he continued to preach uh, against the tyranny of the British and to encourage men to fight in the Continental Army, and so the British issued a warrant for his arrest. So he fled from uh, from Pennsylvania to Virginia, uh, where he uh, survived the war. After the war, he went to South Carolina, where he had a number of cousins, and he served as the pastor of Christ Church near Charleston uh, for the remainder of his life. He died in 1800. Uh, throughout that time, he was a diligent student of the Word of God. He was a faithful pastor to his congregation. And on Amazon, you can actually purchase a two-volume uh, collection of the works of Daniel McCullough. His life, uh, his, the great grief in his life and sorrow in his life was his only child, a daughter, uh, died at the age of 26. She must have been a child bride, but she died as the wife 
of John Witherspoon, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He must have married, he must have been uh, in his 50s or 60s when they were married. Sort of an interesting backstory on, on Daniel McCullough is that his, his father, uh, Daniel McCullough Sr., and his brother, William, came to America from Ireland. They were Scots-Irish Presbyterians. Daniel went to the, the area of Maryland, Pennsylvania, and William uh, went to the Carolinas. The Daniel of whom we learn was the son of the senior Daniel McCullough. The line that descended from his uncle William descended down to my great-grandmother, Annie McCullough, and which would make me sort of a distant cousin to Daniel McCullough. So that was what made this, uh, gave this little additional value to me. Here is a picture of his, of his grave in uh, South Carolina and inscribed upon his uh, tombstone are the words, in testimony of affection and respect for the memory of the late worthy pastor, the Reverend Daniel McCullough, a doctor of divinity. This monument has been erected by the members and supporters of Wapata Church for the 21 years in, uh, enjoyed the distinguished benefit of his ministerial labors. He was born in the Chamonix, Pennsylvania on the 25th of July, 1748, and died at the Grove in this parish on the 6th of April, 1800, aged 60 years, 8 months, and 14 days. In this excellent man were combined the virtues of the Christian the accomplishments of the gentleman, the erudition of the profound scholar, the patriotism of 76, and the energies of faithful servant of Christ. He rests from his labors, and his works do follow him. So it is people like that, everyday Christians, everyday pastors, who inspired the war for independence. Now let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And this morning what I wish to do is give a an introduction to chapter 7, but sort of a transitional message related to what we have learned in, at the end of chapter 6 and as a preparation for what we will study in Matthew chapter 7. As we have seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contrasts the righteousness taught by Scripture, an experiential righteousness, not the, not, the, not the imputed righteousness needed for justification. That, of course, is certainly present in the background. But the experiential righteousness that should, carry, that should characterize the life of the believer, uh, and, of course, this was under the age of the law. And God had promised to Israel, as we have studied so many times, that if they walked according to the law, that God would bless them. This is experiential righteousness. But if not, that God would bring discipline upon them, even to the point of removing them from the land. So what Jesus is articulating in Matthew 5 through 7 is the need for Israel, 5 through 8 rather, the need for Israel to have experiential righteousness, experiential righteousness so that God would bless them in terms of coming into the kingdom. So we see this contrast in the message between the righteousness taught by Scripture, the experiential righteousness, versus the self-righteous judgmental attitude that was present in the actions and the attitudes of the Pharisees at that time. Now, this is not to deny the fact that that experiential righteousness and not judging others was clearly understood by the rabbis as part of the spiritual life. Many times in rabbinical writings from this time, people were warned against judging others. In fact, it is written by uh, various rabbis that he who judges his neighbor favorably will be judged favorable by God. And they laid down the principle that there were six great works with which uh, which brought man... Uh, a man credit in this world and profit in the world to come, study, visiting the sick, uh, hospitality, devotion and prayer, the education of children in the law, and thinking the best of other people. They understood that kindness towards others was part of their uh, their righteousness. 
Hillel, who was a famous rabbi of the period before Christ, stated that we were not to judge a man until you yourselves have come into his circumstances or situation. But just like many Christians today will articulate the principle that we really aren't supposed to judge one another, they'll turn right around and have some sort of arrogant, haughty view towards someone else and condemn them, judge them, ridicule them for whatever failures they perceive that they have. So we also, as Christians, often succumb to the same self-righteous legalism that dominated the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And in the context of this Sermon on the Mount, we need to recognize that as Jesus has taught, he's emphasized this contrast between the thinking of the Pharisees and the divine viewpoint interpretation of the law. As we think back to what we saw in starting in chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus gave talked about six specific commands of the Torah and gave the and contrasted the divine viewpoint interpretation with the Pharisees interpretation that took us from 519 down to the end of the chapter starting in chapter 6 the focus was on three areas of worship so self-righteousness not only impacted their interpretation of specific commands but it impacted how they understood worship Pharisees were motivated by self-righteousness in the sense that they wanted to be seen by others in their external observance of worship in contrast to what Jesus taught in terms of divine viewpoint that the emphasis is on the internal private obedience to God that was done only to be seen by God and not to be seen by men. The point that Jesus makes in these areas is that what matters in our relationship to God is that we do not perform spiritual activities such as giving, prayer, or fasting to impress others, but only to maintain and uh, improve our relationship to God. That was covered in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And at that point, Jesus shifted uh, the topic again, and he began to address the believer's correct attitude toward first money and possessions. And then in chapter 7, 1 through 6, it will be uh, the believer's correct attitude towards uh, people and towards individuals. Regarding money and possessions, Jesus made two points. First of all, that generosity or graciousness part of grace orientation, should characterize our attitude towards money and possessions. Second, the acquisition of wealth and possessions is not in and of itself wrong, but it's not our mission or our priority. There's nothing wrong with having wealth or the things that wealth can purchase, but so often that becomes a distraction to our spiritual life. What is interesting is often those who have much spend so much of their time being distracted by how to keep it. Those who don't have it are distracted by wanting to acquire it. So in terms of the test of, of uh, prosperity, it, it works both ways. It's not just a test for those who have, but it's a test for those who don't have. But what undergirds that section and the section to come is this mentality of grace. What does grace mean? Grace means undeserved kindness or unmerited favor. That means that that when it comes to money, that we need to realize that all that we have in terms of our finances, in terms of our possessions, in terms of our jobs that produce that income, that all of that comes from God, that we need to recognize that he is the one who has blessed us with those jobs blessed us with that income, blessed us with those possessions, that we might use them for his honor and his glory. And so grace orientation is very much the background as our, as our doctrinal concept for understanding uh, what we have just studied in Matthew six nineteen through 34. But it also becomes uh, the background for understanding 7, 1 through 6. 
In the previous case, we're looking at grace towards our possessions, dealing with them uh, in, in such a way that we can use our possessions, our finances, graciously and generously towards others. But starting in chapter 7, we are to treat others with a generosity of spirit and graciousness that instead of ridiculing them, instead of having some sort of judgmental hostility toward them, instead we are going to treat them with kindness and generosity of spirit. So when it comes to grace orientation, we understand first and foremost that grace means undeserved kindness or unmerited favor. We recognize they don't deserve our kindness. They don't deserve us to say good things about them. Actually, they're idiots. They have uh, succumbed to all kinds of stupid temptations. Uh, what kind of fool do they think we are that we're going to be nice to them? I mean, that's our sin nature talking. The reality is we're not to treat them on the basis of what they deserve, but on the basis of what they don't deserve. In the same way that God treats us in grace and kindness and every time we fail, every time we mess up, uh, we're treated out of God's grace and kindness. God's grace is his policy toward us at all times. And when we come to understand that, that is to characterize our attitude toward others so that we deal with others out of a generosity of spirit that is grounded in our understanding of God's grace. So we look at this and we understand our, the basic attitude that we should have. Now, I want you to think about this in a particular way. I want you to think about your attitude towards money and possessions, your attitude towards people in terms of part of our spiritual combat and part of spiritual warfare, that when we enter into certain situations of testing and temptation how we handle our money, how we handle people, that this is part of how Satan attacks us, the assaults that we come under in living in Satan's uh, world system. I want you to turn with me, first of all, to Job in the Old Testament. You just have to find the middle book in the Old Testament, which is our middle book in the Bible, which is Psalms, and then you go one book to the left, and that's Job. And when we look at Job chapter 1... Job informs us of the ultimate spiritual realities in the universe. I think it's interesting to note that Job was likely the very first book written in the Bible. The first book wasn't Genesis. That came later. I think Job, in the episode related to Job, occurs roughly the time of Abraham or Isaac. And it, the, the revelation of, of the book of Job was given to help people understand how to handle the suffering, the hardship, the difficulties in life, and to reveal the fact that there is a, a dimension in life that goes beyond the empirical, that goes beyond that which we can learn through simply the rational, and it is that we are involved in a spiritual conflict. Job opens by telling us about the prosperity that God has given to Job. He has blessed him richly. He would have been the Bill Gates of his generation in terms of his wealth, or in terms of older generations, he would have been the Rockefeller of his of his generation and are the Carnegie of his generation. These were men of enormous wealth, and Job would have been that way. God had blessed him with very much. And then in verse 6 of Job 1, the curtain goes back and we see what happens in the spiritual realm. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, which means the accuser, Satan also came among them. He is the chief of all of the fallen angels. But I want you to notice that all of the angels, both the fallen and the uh, elect or holy angels are all described as sons of God. That is a term that describes angels because they are directly created by God. And they are still gathering in the presence of God, even though Satan has, uh, Lucifer has already fallen, 
A third of the angels have followed him in his rebellion, yet they still have access to heaven. And so there is this uh, great assembly that takes place before the throne of God in heaven. Satan is among them. And the Lord has a little conversation with Satan. Notice it is the Lord, not Satan, who initiates this. The Lord is the one who has a purpose in terms of the role of testing in our lives. And the Lord says to Satan, well, where, where do you come from? From where do you come? And Satan answered and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. In 1 Peter 5, 8, we're told that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may he may devour. He's out cruising the earth looking for those to attack. And so the Lord said, well, have you considered my servant Job? Now, now for many of us, we're thinking, Lord, thanks a lot for pointing me out to Satan. I really appreciate that. I thought you loved me. Well, this helps us to understand an aspect of love. Love seeks our growth and our maturity, not our comfort, and not that everything go easy for us. And so the Lord says, have you taken a, taken notice of Job? There's no one like him on the earth. And then we get, and this happens several times in the next couple of chapters, we get God's God's evaluation of Job. None of this has to do with Job's failures or flaws. He says, have you considered him? He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. You can't find a better set of words in the Old Testament to describe the spiritual maturity of the man. He, Job is solid. He has grown to spiritual maturity, and he points this out to Satan. And then Satan replies in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? And the point that he is making is, well, of course Job fears you. Look at what you've given him. He's got his health. He's got his family. He's got all of his possessions. He's the wealthiest man around. He's the most respected man of his generation. Uh, he's got it all. No wonder he obeys you. Uh, you've been good to him. That's, that's why. Uh, and that's what he goes on to say in verse 10. Uh, and then in verse 11, Satan says, but just put forth, uh, Satan says, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And that's the test. When we lose that which we have, we're talking in terms of those possessions, the money, the possessions that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. When we lose it, do we lose our love for God? Do we lose our devotion to God? Are we going to trust him? As Job will say later in the book, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Is our faith strong enough in that direction? And so the Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put your hand on him. Don't touch him. Don't hurt him personally, physically but everything else you can take. So on that day, he, he uh, loses his children. He loses all of his possessions. Uh, he doesn't lose his wife, who wants him to just uh, become an embittered old man and give it up, but he loses everything, and he hears about it, and when he, the message is delivered that he has lost his possessions, that the house where his children are, have been celebrating uh, that that has been destroyed, and they, they are all dead. He's lost all of his possessions. He's been wiped out financially. The market collapsed, as it were. Job's response is, naked I came from my mother's womb. When I was born, I didn't have anything. Naked I shall return. When I die, I won't have anything. The Lord gave everything that I have. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's our mentality, recognizing God is the one who owns and actually possesses all that we have. And so we have to develop that divine viewpoint mentality of grace orientation towards two areas is what Jesus is talking about. The first is in this area of money, finances, and possessions, and the second is going to be in the area of how we how we treat people. So we will begin this next section talking about judge not that you be not judged. Now, I want to just say a little something about how we understand what happens here. Here we have the sin nature, that uh, wonderful part we all still struggle with, even though we've been given a victory over it. Here's a chart showing the basis of this, of the sin nature. 
There's two areas here. The area of strength is the area where we aren't ever tempted in certain areas. This is the area that's operative when we're judging others. We see somebody and they, they succumb to uh, some sort of an, uh, of an attack, uh, some, some sort of situation uh, in life, and they commit some sort of sin and they fail. But it's not a sin we would succumb to. So we look down on them from our high point of arrogance and we think, oh, you know, what a fool that they have succumbed to this. And we act out of arrogance and think that we are better than they. Now, everybody here has an area of strength and everybody here has areas of weakness. And this is often the case that you, you from your area of strength, you think, uh, how can that person succumb to that? But you, you have your own area, your own flaw, your own area of weakness where you easily succumb. And that's not a problem for them. But the reality is, this is a backdrop for what Jesus is teaching. We all have serious flaws because of our sin nature. And only God has the right to judge us. None of us have the right to judge anyone else because there's always this problem in our own, in our own life. We have to understand the dynamics of arrogance as we go into this uh, next, there we go, slide finally advances. As we go into this next slide, we often succumb to arrogance. Arrogance is at the core of our sin nature. Arrogance is what motivates sin, and it motivates us in the area uh, of human good. Uh, we are oriented by virtue of our fallen nature towards self-absorption. These are the five arrogant skills. When we are self-absorbed, it leads to self-indulgence. We're so focused on what I want that we indulge that again and again. You learned this when you were a child. You don't think about it anymore. I don't think about it. This is our default position, and we're all experts at this. And we've managed to figure out ways to camouflage it, so we disguise it from ourselves and we disguise it from others. That's called self-justification. We have good, solid reasons for our self-indulgence and self-absorption. You just are too arrogant to understand it. But my, I have good reasons. Okay, self-justification then develops self-deception. We can't see the truth in ourselves for what it is. We're deceived. This is what Jesus will talk about in this opening section when he talks about uh, don't take the worry about the speck in your uh, brother's eye until you've taken the log out of your own eye. We've got a major problem in each of our own lives, but because of self-justification and self-deception, we can't see it. So all we do is focus on somebody else. And ultimately, when we're following our path of, of uh, arrogance, it leads to self-deification. Now, what we saw from Job is that we are in a, an invisible war. We're in a spiritual warfare. This is what the Scriptures talk about, especially in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following. But we also see a reference to the armor of God in the passage we're, we're studying on Thursday night in Romans chapter chapter 13, at the end of the chapter, we have to think in terms of the battle, that we have we are constantly hit by ambushes. One of the greatest tools that Satan uses against us is that of surprise, one of the ten, uh, ten basic principles of warfare. And Satan defeats us again and again through surprise. Rarely do we face the kind of frontal assaults that Daniel McCullough and General Thompson faced at the Battle of the Three Rivers. Uh, frequently what hits us are the spiritual IEDs that Satan builds into the world system that hit us uh, all around in combination with various ambushes. We often have problems, uh, just as in, in physical warfare, with infiltration of the enemy into our own lines, which is our own sin nature. And when we take enemy fire, we have to learn how to respond to that enemy fire, not in terms of holding on and grasping after our possessions and our money, not in terms of judging, ridiculing, uh, condemning other people, but in terms of focusing upon the Lord as the one who protects us and provides for us. Just a couple of verses that we should take to heart in terms of this concept of warfare. And that we see often and again in the Psalms, 
a reference to the Lord as our protector, our shield, our defender. These are military terms. What protects us from enemy fire? It is what I've described in the past as the soul fortress. It's what's provided by God. In Psalm 3.3 we read, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. When we get hit by the spiritual ambush, we can either try to solve it through our own self-absorbed dependence upon our own resources, or we depend upon the resources that God has given us. He's our fortress. Psalm 31.2 says, Bow down your ear to me, deliver me speedily, be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. Psalm 31.3 goes on to say, For you are my rock and my fortress. How can we come to the Lord in prayer? Because we recognize he is our protector. He's our rock, our fortress. Therefore, the psalmist says, For your namesake, for your character, Lord, lead me and guide me. And so we are to recognize that God and God alone is the one who protects us, who provides for us, and supplies our every need. Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my uh, rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. How many different adjectives are used there to describe that God's the one who protects us? That's where we dive for cover when we start taking enemy fire. Psalm 62.2, he alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. See, the key to grace orientation is dependence upon God, which is expressed in terms of humility. I just want to briefly read through a couple of passages. We can develop this a little more, tie this together. First Peter 5.5, 5, Peter says, Likewise, you younger people, submit to your elders. It's authority orientation. That's where Satan failed in eternity past. But we need to submit to God's authority. So Peter says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Humility is the opposite of arrogance. When we're operating on arrogance, when we take enemy fire, we're going to be defeated. But we have to humble ourselves, as he says in verse 6, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time. Now, how do you humble yourself? By casting, see, it's a it's a participle of means in verse 7. We humble ourselves by casting all of our care upon him because he cares for us. We throw it on his back. That's how we humble ourselves, by being obedient, by giving it over uh, to the Lord. Uh, we see the same thing repeated in James 4, 6 through 10. It says he gives more grace. God sustains us in the midst of the battle. And he, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What's the solution? Verse 7, submit to God. This includes resisting the devil. He will flee from you. Notice it's not taking an, the offense against Satan. The word resist is a defensive term. We dive behind the stronghold of the Lord and let him sustain us by casting our care upon him. Uh, we cleanse ourselves of sin. That's the reference in verse 8. Uh, there's also an attitude of, of uh, remorse over the sin in our life. This often accompanies confession. It's not the key to confession. It often uh, accompanies it. But the result is that when we confess our sin, the result is that joy is restored to our soul. And James concludes in verse 10, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will exalt you. Same principle as stated in First uh, Peter chapter 5. But then where does Job go? I mean, where does James go? He says, don't speak evil of one another, brethren. This is the backdrop for understanding the same principle that Jesus starts with in Matthew 7. So if we're going to be successful in not failing the test, the people test, not condemning others, then it has to be undergirded by this understanding of grace orientation and that in the midst of testing, God and God alone is the source of our strength, and he is the one who sustains us. So with that, we're prepared to get into the next section in Matthew 7, which we will do next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things today and to reflect upon our freedom, the political civil freedom we have in this country that derives from an understanding of the spiritual freedom 
that we have in Jesus Christ. But we only have that spiritual freedom if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior. And we pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening who has never uh, made a decision to trust in Christ alone for their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to do, the, do so. Perhaps you're not sure or certain of your eternal destiny. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would drive the gospel home to those who are listening, that we might recognize that our salvation, our eternal salvation plus our temporal deliverance from the traumas of life depends upon your grace, that in your grace you provided a salvation that is not based on who we are or what we do but on what Christ did on the cross. And in our living of the Christian life, that we are to depend upon you, casting all of our care upon you, because you care for us. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these principles this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.